Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the book of Genesis. We'll be in Genesis chapter 39. Actually, we'll be moving around a few different places in the book of Genesis today, 37 through 39. But go ahead and locate yourself in Genesis chapter 39. We're continuing in this series, You Are Loved. Here's the key concept today. God loves you even when He seems silent. God loves you even when He seems silent. Throughout the series here, we are going to be looking at the various facets of God's love. It's like a gem. You turn it and you see different facets come out. Today, God's love is present at all times. In a moment, I'm going to ask you to parachute with me into the middle of the story of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph's story is such that it must have seemed at times to him that God had somehow lost track of him. At some, maybe he was mad at him at some times or not paying attention as his life is being lived. And we're going to review the details of that life. Let's set the stage a little bit. Quickly, we remember that Joseph was hated by his brothers. Joseph was thrown into a pit by his brothers, sold as a slave, accused of a sex crime that he didn't commit. He was uh, jailed anyway and forgotten in that jail for a long period of time. But eventually, the story of Joseph shows him ascending into a place of power in a foreign nation. The story moves along rapidly in the closing chapters of the book of Genesis, but no doubt it took years to unfold, and for long periods of time, God seemed silent in Joseph's life. God seemed removed. He seemed distant. And when it seems like that's how God is relating to us, it's easy to begin to think that really He doesn't love us after all. And it's in that position, it's easy to adopt what I call a victim mindset, to feel like a victim. A victim mindset or a victim mentality is a way of thinking that convinces us that we are never able to overcome our problems. A victim mentality says, I am unusually burdened. I carry more problems in my life than most people do. Life is not fair to me, and it's not my fault. The world is against me, and I'll never get over it. It'll never get better. I can't change it. This is just the way that it is. Now, for some of us, that emotion, those thoughts may seem very familiar. And maybe they're familiar to you as you or someone you love is dealing with COVID-19. It's easy to feel like a victim when we're cooped up in our houses and a disease is raging around us. But what about Joseph? Joseph was the 11th of Jacob's 12 sons. He was the, the, the oldest son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel, but she's now passed away. But he was Jacob's favorite son, and it was no secret. Jacob made it obvious he preferred Joseph over all the other boys. Now, most parents want their children to think that they, we, we love you all equally. You're all equal in our sight. We love you all the same. We say that over and over. Maybe this Christmas just passed. You kind of worked as mom and dad to make sure that the, the kids opened up about the same number of packages under the Christmas tree, treating all the kids the same. That was not true of Jacob. He didn't care. He had a favorite. It was Joseph, and he made it flagrant and obvious that Joseph was preferred. He gave Joseph presents that he didn't give the other boys. He gave Joseph a coat of many colors. 
unlike what the other sons had. And so we see a result of that. In Genesis 37, 4, we read, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. There it is, another dysfunctional family. And by the time Joseph was growing up as an older boy or maybe a young teenager, that dysfunctional, toxic system of the family began to show its fruit. Because Joseph has dreams of his superiority over his brothers, and he feels free to share those dreams with the brothers. He's growing into an arrogant young man. He brags about his dreams. In my dreams, you guys are all bowing down to me. He flaunts his presence. Look at this coat of many colors. What kind of color does your coat have? Oh, did Dad even give you a coat? And the brothers' uh, anger turns into resentment, and their resentment turns into hatred. And so one day, when Jacob, who is by now called Israel, sends Joseph out into the fields to check on the brothers' work as they watch over the flocks to make sure everything's going well. The brothers see their opportunity to get even. And we pick up the reading in chapter 37, verse 23. It says this, So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. So there he is, in a pit, a victim of the brother's rage. And now what? And so to make a long story short, we see that a caravan of traders comes by to which the brothers sell Joseph as a slave. The traders take Joseph down to Egypt, and he is purchased by another man as a house slave in the house of a man named Potiphar. And now, by now, Joseph is probably feeling very sorry for himself, wondering if God is even paying attention and if God's love is still with him. Joseph has been turned into a victim. Let's look at how he's been victimized. First of all, he's been victimized by, by his brothers. His is a tale of favoritism, which leads to grudge-carrying, which eventually blows up in violence. Like many people, Joseph is first victimized by his family. We see that. We hear tales of emotional cruelty and, and, and abuse in homes, the place that ought to be the location where we're safest of all, where we are protected and nurtured, turns into a battle zone. People are often victimized by family first, and that kind of victimization the hurt runs deep. It sets us up to believe that we will never get out of it, that we'll be victims everywhere in life. But Joseph was first victimized by his family. And secondly, he's victimized by the Ishmaelites. Look at chapter 37, verse 28. There it talks about the Ishmaelites coming down and, and purchasing Joseph uh, as, uh, as they want to be uh, selling him as a slave. It says, so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. The Ishmaelites were a group of traveling salesmen. The product that they sold mainly was spice, spices of all kinds. 
But they had come to believe that they could sell anything, even slaves. And so they buy Joseph from, their, from his hateful brothers. They take him down to Egypt and they sell him as a slave, victimizing him once again. They don't see a young man in need. They don't see a young man that's hurting, that's been taken advantage of. They see an opportunity to make a quick buck. And so in the name of money, Joseph is victimized again. Thirdly, Joseph is victimized by Potiphar. Look at chapter 39, verse 1. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Potiphar was the captain of the guard. Once again, the motivation of getting something out of somebody else's sadness he saw Joseph not as a person, not as a human being, but he saw him as a commodity. He had no problem owning Joseph, working Joseph, and when things went well, even promoting Joseph for the advancement of his own household so that his own wealth would expand. Joseph was just a business asset in his view, property. And then there was Potiphar's wife, Go down to verse 7 of chapter 39, and we see the situation there. It says, And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. Mrs. Potiphar wants Joseph for her own lusts. This is a woman who watches too many soap operas, spends too much time watching the real housewives of Egypt. She has too much time on her hands, uh, just kind of aimlessly uh, uh, sitting around the house. Joseph is doing the work of the household, and, and uh, he's a good-looking young man, evidently, and this was not a one-time thing. Verse 10 says she, she did this day after day. Here's Joseph in charge of the household, probably, you know, in his early 20s, maybe late teens. He probably could get away with this on a human level, but he rightly refused. One pastor writes about a conversation he had very early in his career. A senior minister, an older minister, asked him to think about something. He said, I want you to make a list of all the people in your life that would be hurt grievously through sexual immorality in your life. And he'd made that list. And he wrote down that list. And he wrote down even people who didn't yet exist. He wrote down his yet-to-be-born children and his yet-to-be-born grandchildren. And looking back on that experience, that pastor writes these words. It reminds me that one act of carnality is a poor trade for a lifetime legacy lost. Now, maybe Joseph didn't have that physical list that that pastor wrote down, but he did have a mental list, a, a list in his mind, and predominantly on that list was one name. Go to verse uh, 9 uh, of chapter 39, and we pick up Joseph's thinking there. It says at the end, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He was vitally aware that God was watching. It was God that was on that list. I was driving to work the other day, and a radio preacher was on, on the radio, and he was talking about uh, our entrance now into a new year and uh, how we face a new year, and he said these words. He said, when you wake up every morning in 2021, remember God sees you. That should be our first thought when we wake up in the morning. God sees me. 
And God saw Joseph. He he refused to cooperate with the immorality that was being presented to him by Mrs. Potiphar. But instead of respecting that decision, Mrs. Potiphar made up a lie, a lie of sexual harassment that he had come on to her, that he had attempted to rape her. And look at verse 20 of chapter 39. It says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Once again, Joseph is victimized, yet in a different way, now by Mrs. Potiphar. See, all along the way, if there ever was a guy who could say, man, everywhere I turn, things turn out bad. Everywhere I go, things are against me. I just can't make it. I, get, I just can't get past it. I am a victim. It was Joseph. He could have looked at his life that way. It would have been easy for him to come to believe that God doesn't love me, that God is silent in his leading for me, and that would turn him negative in life. And that's just exactly what Satan wanted Joseph to do, to turn negative, to look at things in a negative way. Imagine a person who buys a 35-millimeter film camera. You remember film? Now, nowadays, film is making a comeback. People are taking pictures with film and sending it in, having it developed. It's, it's coming back again. So, so imagine a person who's kind of getting into this uh, renewed fad once again, and he buys the film and he takes the pictures. He sends the film into the company to get the pictures developed with a note. And the note says, I don't want you to send me back the photos. I only want you to send me back the negatives. And then you go over to that friend's house, and he says, I want to show you my photo albums. And he opens up the photo albums, and they're filled with negatives, all only negatives. None of the pictures are there. The colors are missing. The beauty is missing. All this record of all the things that he's done in life, he sees it all only in a negative hue. You would wonder about that person, right? There are people who see their lives that way. At every turn, they, they expect the negative. They see the negative, and they, ter- and they tend to develop a kind of woe-is-me attitude, an approach to life that says, I'm always a victim, and it will never get better. And I want you to hear that Satan wants to trap you there if that's who you are, if you let him, but you don't have to let him. Because when you let him trap you into that victim mentality, you will miss the next blessing that God is bringing you. See, the wonderful news about Joseph's story is that Joseph did not get trapped in the victim mentality. He did not get trapped in a negative look of life. Underneath the surface of the circumstances of Joseph's life, he had some pillars of strength that stabilized him and gave him victory. And they all had to do with the love of God the assurance of the love of God in his life, even though there were periods of time that God must have seemed silent. What were those pillars? Pillar number one, Joseph knew that he labored for God. He knew that he labored for God. Whatever he did, whatever work was before him, he was laboring for God and not for man. And God loved him. Some people, you see, would look at uh, Joseph's life and think he was the property of Potiphar there in Egypt. But Joseph looked at his life and he knew that he was the property of God. 
In any situation he was in, that he was called upon to, to uh, labor, he was laboring for God. Every morning when he got up and he had to serve in that household, he got up with the idea knowing God sees me here. God's paying attention. This is a pillar of strength, and it's specifically a pillar of strength that we can apply to work, to our jobs. Many of us feel like victims in our jobs today. As you go into work or maybe zoom into work or maybe work at home, it's easy to feel trapped, underappreciated, maybe underpaid in the midst of all the new stress and tension that we're feeling. And we can often feel ourselves to be victims, the victims of our company, victims of our boss, victims of our department head. But rather, we should see ourselves working for God. At this point, sold into slavery, sold to the captain of the guards. One, one man writes that uh, he thinks that it's possible that the captain of the guard in ancient Egypt was also the chief executioner of the country. So, if that's the case, and it very well may be, can you imagine being the slave of the chief executioner of the country? If I had to be a slave of somebody, it, he would be the last person on my list, and I would do whatever it would take to keep that man happy above all things. And, and Joseph did work well for Potiphar and advanced his interests, but he realized all along the way that his first allegiance was to God. He saw himself working for God, serving God in all that he did, and that was the motivation that provided Joseph's urge towards excellence. Now, the Apostle Paul brings this out to us in the New Testament. He says in Colossians chapter 3, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Do everything you do in keeping with the nature of our Lord. Do everything you do in the way that would be in keeping with, with His will, with His love, with His purity, with His desire for us. Do everything knowing that you are loved by God and He sees you. He's watching. Joseph was living out that principle even as a slave, but that gave him victory. Secondly, Joseph knew that he was living for God in every aspect of life, not just his work, but in every aspect, he knew he was living for God. When Mrs. Potiphar, uh, you know, comes on to him in a sexual way to seduce him, go back to chapter 39, verse 9, hear his words once again. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God. Now, there's more to that statement than just, I know that God is watching. That's true. That's there. But Joseph, in his heart, did not want to let God down. He did not want God to see him do something that was disappointing and sinful. He did not want to break God's heart in that way. And so he was able, knowing that God loved him, to push off this temptation. You see, when it comes to temptation and dealing with temptation, if we're not convinced that God loves us, it's very difficult to, to fight back against Satan's temptations. It's often easy to fall into the idea that says, well, you know, God doesn't care, nobody cares, this sin really doesn't matter, nobody sees, nobody's watching, I'm alone in this journey called life. But that's not true because you are loved. Sin matters 
because you matter. That's the issue. Don't let down the one who loves you most. And, and J- Joseph understood that the one who loves me most is a witness to everything I do. How could I do this and sin against God? You see, this portion of Joseph's life can be boiled down to a simple life lesson, and that is this. Do what pleases God because He loves you. When presented with a choice, do what pleases God. Your co-workers are heading over to the strip club after work. What should you do? Do what pleases God. Your friends hand you a joint at the party. What should you do? Do what pleases God. Your classmates show you a way to cheat on the online test now, and the teacher will never know. What should you do? Do what what pleases God. Why? Because you are loved by God. You matter to Him. And because you matter to Him, your sin matters to Him. And you are loved in His eyes. Joseph understood that. He was always under the gaze of God. He was not anonymous, and neither are you. Satan lies to us at the point of temptation. And he lies the same way every time. He whispers at the point of temptation, Go ahead. No one will ever know. No one will ever care. And then if we fall to temptation, he whispers lie number two. Lie number two is everybody knows all is lost. You see, you're hopeless. And this is exactly his pattern. But Joseph, because he knew that he was loved by God and God was watching and he knew him by name, Joseph was able to short-circuit that very first lie. He sees how immorality with Mrs. Potiphar would not only be a betrayal of Mr. Potiphar, but a betrayal of the one who loves him most. And so he fights temptation. But there is that third thing, and I've been alluding to it all along. Joseph lived his life knowing he was loved by God. He understood that the God he served saw him and loved him with with an everlasting love even in those circumstances when he seems silent. You see, all through the story of the life of Joseph, we see the words, God was with Joseph at the point of slavery, at the point of prison. No matter what he was encountering, the love of God was still there, even though the circumstances are tough. And here's the the, the meaning for that. When you know you are loved, it helps you deal with a crisis. When you know you are loved, it helps you deal with a crisis. I repeat that twice because this is the very reason I'm preaching this series of messages right now. We are in a crisis. Times are difficult for many of us beyond what we thought we would have to bear. Know that you are loved because when you know you are loved, it helps you deal with a crisis. Speaking of a crisis, I I remember the story told once by Paul Harvey radio commentator of a generation ago, told wonderful stories. And one of the stories he told was about a young couple, newly married, and they bought their first new car. And uh, it it was a big deal to get this new car. And the the wife was driving the car for the first time ever on her own. She just had the car a couple of times, and she got distracted, and she got into an accident. 
And oh, it was heartbreaking. She sat in the car crying. You know, the policeman came up to the side of the window. He tapped on the window, and here she was sobbing. You know, this is a brand new car. It's the first time I ever drove it. You know, what am I going to tell my husband? And the officer, you know, tried to be, you know, understanding, but basically he was saying, let me see your registration. And so she reached into the glove compartment and pulled out the registration, and another piece of paper fell out. And that piece of paper was entitled, In Case of Accident. And so she opened that piece of paper, and this is what it said. In case of accident, honey, remember it's you I love, not the car. That was just music to her ears. When you know you're loved, you can get through crisis. You are loved by God. It is you that He cares for in the midst of hard times. And that does not change. So Joseph is accused by Mrs. Potiphar. He goes to jail, and maybe some of you are saying, well, you know, how does this really pay off? You know, it doesn't sound like he's really benefiting from all this love that God is showing him. Let's jump to the end of the story. In chapter 41, the book of Genesis, it says this. So, Joseph said, uh, so Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. He had him ride in a chariot as his second in command, and men shouted before him, Make way. Joseph had his own motorcade as he rose to a position of power in the land of Egypt. Now, I'm not going to tell you the whole tale about how that worked out, but I can tell you that it would not have worked out if Joseph had turned his back on God or if Joseph had given up on the love of God. He would not have gotten there. And I want to make a simple point with you, and that is the reality of reward. The reality of reward. We see reward in the story of Joseph. And maybe you're wondering if reward is going to come. Maybe you're wondering if your purity is worth it, or if your honesty is worth it, or if your integrity is worth it. The Apostle Paul said these things in 2 Corinthians 4, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Light and momentary troubles. Now, this is a man who was shipwrecked for the cause of the gospel, who was imprisoned, who was beaten, who was left for dead, had stones thrown on him, who was whipped and scourged. And he called it light and momentary troubles because he saw the glory that was coming. Now, sometimes the rewards are real and they come right here in this life. And sometimes the rewards come in the life to come. They always come in that life to come. But reward comes after tough times, maybe after long times in hardships, but we're able to endure because we are loved by God. Even in those moments where he seems silent, he is acting, he is moving, he sees the big picture. A moment ago, we, we sang a portion of the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton was a pastor in the 18th century, and he wrote that hymn. And at one point, he had a friend who was going through some extremely difficult times, and he wrote that friend a letter of encouragement. Partly, this is what he said. He said, when you cannot see your way, be satisfied that he is your leader. When your spirit is overwhelmed within you, he knows your path. And the point is to stay on the path that God is putting before us, not to divert, because his path is the way of love. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. Would you bow your heads and in an attitude of prayer, just 
conjure up a mental picture. What is the issue about which you are tempted to give up? Picture that issue before you. God, I pray for victory for your people. Whatever the issue is that we are picturing right now, I know that you see those issues and you see us and you love us. You know what is best for us and you know when it would be best to bring it to us. So help us get through your way in your time. Give us victory, but all along the way, assure us of your love, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.